You know, that um, kind of an ominous reading this morning from the book of Amos about this kind of stinginess and greed in, um, in the nation of Israel. Uh, and I think that it, it, I, it might be the only place in the Bible where God threatens to curse them with baldness. <laughs> I'm not, re- I'm not really sure what all that is about, but that just sounds like mean. <laughs> we know we probably should have Steve unpack that. Oh, that's it was a big deal, this kind of stinginess and greed that was apparent in the nation of Israel. Because it, 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 it denies uh, the image of God in them. See, because biblical generosity comes as a direct result of having a transformational encounter with the radically generous God of the Bible. Trinitarian God. God the Father who generously gave his son, God the Son who generously gave his life, and God the Spirit who comforts us and generously gives us his gifts. God in essence is Trinity, and he's a generous, ever-giving God, and therefore to be in relationship with him is to, in time, be transformed into something, who, someone who looks more and more like God. This is also to become more and more human. Because to be Christian is to say that you're made in the image of God. And therefore, one of the ways you know that you're a Christian is that over time, you are becoming ever more like him, ever more generous, ever more selfless with your time, ever more selfless with your talent, ever more selfless with your treasure, ever more thinking about others, even over your own desires. It's one of the primary ways that you know you're growing in sanctification. You're becoming ever more like the generous God of the Bible. That's part of the reason why the second part of Redeemer's shared vision is to give ever more time, talent, and treasure to seeking the flourishing of our neighbors. This is, this is an important idea because Jesus talks about money more than any other single issue in the Gospels. Eleven of his 39 parables are directly about money. And so whether you have it or you don't, whether you're planning for it or striving for it, its absence or its presence can create all kinds of problems. Envy or self-righteousness, if you don't have it, you know, if I, if I had money, I certainly wouldn't spend it like that. Or arrogance, pride, and hard-heartedness, if you do have it. Money is so vitally important because Jesus says that more than anything, it, it resonates with and even reveals your heart, what you love. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. If anyone, I mean, I, this has just become more and more evident in my own life as I'm watching my retirement accounts 
dwindle, <laughs> go down and down and down, even though I'm putting money into them. I'm really having to fight this just huge sense of anxiety, not be too closely connected to that. We are just deeply connected to our money. This was reality for people in Jesus's day and it's reality for us today. And so if we desire to have a healthy or a healthier relationship with our money, we must listen to what Jesus has to say, even when it's difficult and awkward. I genuinely don't look forward to preaching about money any more than you look forward to hearing about it. But today's gospel reading is about money and I didn't get to choose it. So thank you, lectionary. If you've got your Bible or a device that you can turn to this, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13, the passage that Steve just read. You know, there's some complexity in this passage because the first part, the parable part before the teaching part, is a story that can seem downright confusing, even contradictory to, well, everything else Jesus taught. He con commends, not condemns, a dishonest manager and a shady master. He praises shrewdness. And he seems to imply in verse 9 that one can buy or bribe one's way into eternal life. And these details can be really distracting to us in this passage, but we shouldn't allow them to sidetrack us from the foundational truth about Jesus's favorite subject, which is really the point. So the first thing for us to do is to seek to understand how this parable works, which like most parables can be seen and read on at least two levels. One, for Jesus's original hearers, the, the, the people actually standing there and one for us today, and for all disciples throughout history and on into the future. And N.T. Wright is incredibly helpful here. He, he says that it looks like the master in the story and not just the manager had himself been acting in an underhanded way. And here's why. Jews were forbidden to lend money on interest or at interest, but there was a kind of loophole there. Lots of wealthy people got around this by lending in kind, with oil and wheat being the easiest commodities to use for this purpose. It seems likely that what the manager deducted from the bill was the interest the master had been charging, with a higher rate on oil than on wheat. If he reduced the bill in each case to the principal, the simple amount that had been lent, the debtors would be delighted but the master couldn't lay a charge against the steward without exposing his own shady business practices. So when the master heard, heard about it, he could only admire the man's clever approach and commend him for it. The second thing to realize is what the parable is really about. 
It is, after all, a parable and not a dense piece of moral teaching about money and how or how not to use it, although we find some explicit moral teaching on money immediately following it, which does kind of cloud the issue, at least to begin with. If we were faced with a first century Jewish story we'd never heard before about a master and a steward, we'd know right away what it was almost certainly about. The master is God, the steward is Israel. Israel is supposed to be God's property manager, the light of God's world, responsible to God and set over his possessions. But Israel has failed in this and is under the threat of imminent dismissal, which did actually happen. Less than 40 years later, 40 years after Jesus told this parable, with the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple by the Roman army in 70 AD. This imminence then being the case, what should Israel do? Well, the Pharisees' answer was to double down, to pull the regulations of the law even tighter, to, to try to make Israel more quote-unquote holy, to the effect that they were excluding the very people that Jesus was reaching out to. Jesus, in this parable, indicates that if Israel is facing a major crisis, and they are, the answer is rather to throw caution to the wind, to forget the extra bits and pieces of the law that you have piled up like heavy loads and to make friends however and whenever they can. That's what the children of this world would do. The children of light, that is the Israelites, ought to do so as well. Learning from the shrewd people around the world how to cope with a coming crisis. So instead of hoarding money and land, Jesus' advice is to use it as far as one could to make friends. Because alternative homes, homes that would last, would be needed and soon. So this parable seems to be directed very specifically to the situation of Jesus' first century audience. So how do we bring it into the 21st century? Well, we follow Jesus. From a parable about money, Jesus moves in verse 10 to explicit teaching about money. It contains some of Jesus' strongest and clearest warnings about the dangers of money and the experience suggests that neither the church nor the world has taken these warnings very much to heart. Somewhere along the line, serious repentance and a renewed determination to hear and obey Jesus' clear teaching seems necessary. Disciples of Jesus are called by virtue of their vocation to faithfully use money to bring as much hope and healing to the world as possible, to give ever more to seeking the true flourishing of their neighbors. And the key to the whole thing is in the opening verse. It is about stewardship. There was a rich man who had a manager. Money isn't a possession as we think of it. It's a trust. God entrusts property to people and expects it to be used to his glory and the welfare of his children, not for private glory or glamour. Jesus does something here that he does in other places. He compares God's followers with a steward, a manager, 
a Greek term that literally means the ruler of the house and is most often rendered as steward. The steward is the primary actor in this parable, essentially the COO of an estate. He could buy and sell, and he had all the legal authority of the owner, but it wasn't his estate. And fundamental to being Christian and to relate to this manager in the present is that we see ourselves in exactly the same way. Stewards, God has entrusted us with what is his. This is the whole point of verses 10 through 12, which say, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful with the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to true riches? To entrust to you true riches. And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is not your own? Are you trustworthy with everything that you have? Are you faithful as a steward? Those questions are central to the vocational call of every disciple of Jesus in every place and at every time. This is an ancient idea. It goes all the way back to creation, where we see that God creates humanity and says immediately to them in Genesis 1, you have dominion and rule. In other words, God gives authority to the human race to oversee, protect, and cultivate all of the world's resources in such a way as to bring about God's plan and God's value and God's vision. It's what the Old Testament calls shalom. Humans were given authority to oversee and cultivate the world's resources to reveal, to reveal the beauty and glory and goodness of God. Everything is his. And we're to use it as his stewards for the, stewards for the good of the world. I'm sorry I said Stuart. Lauren was telling me I spelled Stuart Pittman wrong this morning, so I have Stuart on the mind. And we're to use it as his stewards, stewards for the good of the world. That's why in 1 Chronicles 29, when the community of God comes together to build a temple, a place that celebrates the presence of the Lord, King David says in verses 11 through 14, Yours, O Lord is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Yes, because you hear it every Sunday after the doxology. Going on in verse 12, wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things in your hands our strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name, but who am I and who are these people that we should be able to give as generously as this? David says everything came from God in the first place, and we are only giving back what was already his to build a temple to honor him and to show the people in our community 
that God is here. He is present and he is for them. Sounds like a really good reason to build a building. But this idea is antithetical to the hyper-individualistic, atomized culture of the West that basically says, what? Mine. It's all mine. But God says, for a Christian, there's no such thing as it's my money. No, you're, the, you're not the owner of the state. You're the steward. And whatever wealth you have is a function of the fact that God gave you the health and the talent and the abilities and the good circumstances to it. No matter how hard you've worked, no matter how much sacrifice you've made, no matter how many thousands of hours you put in as an intern and paid your dues, which obviously is incredibly important, God says none of that would have happened unless I gave you the talent and the health and the circumstances for it to happen. Because who are we? We are in the vast majority white, born in the modern Western world, and we speak English. That's a huge advantage. You could have been born in the 12th century on a remote mountain in Tibet next to a goat. And no matter how hard you worked, you'd still have nothing. Or you could have been born in the first part of the 20th century in our country, black and poor and in the Jim Crow South. Or in this century, in the Dharavi slum in Mumbai, India, a million people basically living in cardboard boxes. You, me, we had no control over that. So when we think that the resources that we have, uh, the, the, the resources, so when, <laughs> I can't even read what I have written. So when we think about the resources we have, we must remember that everything God says is from my hand to yours. Can I trust you? And for most of us who live in this time and place, not only for most of human history, but for most of the world today, we have, no matter how much we make, more wealth than most of the world. So if we can stretch this parable just a little farther into our lives, God says, I'm going to hold you accountable one day for how you spend my money. This recalibrates our relationship with money and hopefully helps us unclench our fists a little because it's not ours. That should humble us, but it should also exalt us. Because think about what a steward is. A steward is someone who's supposed to take the wealth they've been entrusted with and plow it back into the goals and objectives of the owner. And therefore, to be a follower of Jesus is to use your treasure, to use your time, to use your talent, to use whatever resources you have to cultivate the kingdom of God, something that's going to last forever. Rather than attach your money and your life to your own little purposes, you get to attach your money and your life to the ultimate story of the world. World, it will multiply beyond the limits of this time. And one day you'll see its fruit renewed, restored, transformed, incorruptible for eternity in the kingdom of God, lived out in a new heavens and a new earth. There's no better purpose 
for God's money. And knowing the immense scope of what you've been entrusted with should exalt you immensely. One of the movies that we watched a lot in our house when the boys were small was Hook, where Robin Williams plays Peter Pan. And toward the end of the movie, where when he's about to leave a restored and renewed and beautiful Never Never Land, he hands over its stewardship to the kids, the Lost Boys. And you can just see it in them. Their eyes bug out, their smiles are huge, their chests are puffed out, and their stature is absolutely erect. As humbled as they were, it was a privilege that they had never imagined. It's a beautiful and dramatic moment of exaltation. And I'd appreciate it if you didn't tell people that I said Jesus was Peter Pan <laughs> tomorrow. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it's our incredible privilege, a truly amazing thing that God has said to us here. You're in charge till I get back. And that should humble, both humble and exalt you, knowing that God has simultaneously given you that responsibility and that privilege. So practically speaking, what does that look like? Well, for most people, if you're a Christian, minimally you give 10% of your income back to God. 10%. That's the minimum standard. You could retort. Hang on, that's... That's the Old Testament. That's never specifically talked about in the New Testament. And you would be right. But you know what it does say in the New Testament? Jesus, in Luke 3, verses 10 and 11, says this, And the crowds asked Jesus, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics, give one to him who has none. So now we're at 50%. We might want to quit while we're, <laughs> we're ahead. The point is, the money we have is his money, and he knows there are all kinds of claims made on it, and so we must be intentional about it and sacrificial about it. To say, I'm a follower of Jesus, but to ignore that is to effectively say, I'm the owner of the estate. But you're not. You're a steward, and the minimum standard that you're accountable to for, to for to him is that you should give 10% of your money back to him. That's uncomfortable for me to say, but that is what Lauren and I do. We do that at Redeemer as well. Our vestry has worked very hard over the last few years to make sure that our top line giving is 10% of everything that we receive to, to missions, to benevolence, to um, supporting the work of our diocese, planting churches, doing all of those things. And by the way, you know, we sang this song, Great is Thy Faithfulness, as we came in. And when I saw the bulletin at first, I'm, I'm thinking, well, that's maybe that's not really a great song to process to because it's not kind of like, you know, martially and we're going to walk into it. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought this is perfectly aligned with what God says in his word. And I want to tell you 
that our, our vestry at the beginning of this year approved a budget that we believed was going to be, we were gonna fall $30,000 short of in our giving, the commitments that we had. And we were headed in that direction. None of us was surprised, but we were all taking a lot of gulps. We, and we had the money. We had saved very diligently from years before. I want to tell you that at the end of June, we were in the black. And at the end of July, we were also in the black. And this is purely the provision of God. And we are so grateful for that and so grateful to those of you who give um, in a disciplined and sacrificial way. And I'm, I'm genuinely not being self-serving or at least not trying to be because this doesn't mean that you have to give it to Redeemer. I truly believe we are being good stewards too, but there are innumerable places striving to strengthen and build the kingdom of God, doing great work where you can give. It doesn't have to be us. But I believe the bottom line in this passage, though, is that money is a pointer. It, it points beyond itself to the true riches that await us in the life to come. What they are, we can hardly guess. But there are true riches that really will belong to us in a way that money doesn't if we learn faithfulness here and now. If we don't, we'll simply find ourselves torn between two masters, hating one and loving the other. And the fact is, money is a master and it will enslave you. That is just reality. Um, for those of you who aren't giving in that way and would like to, I will tell you, it's a stepwise process. It was for us a long, lot of years to get to that point. Um, but it meant that we had to change some behaviors. And I've got to tell you that um, behaviors are easy to change. It's, it's making them habits that is hard. But the only difference between a behavior and a habit is, you know what it is? Time time. But we have to decide. And we have to learn to hold on loosely to our money. And until we do this, we will always be enslaved to it. And that, too, is reality. I'm done preaching, but I do want to share one thing with you. And if you've got a, a pen or a device that you can take a note in, I would, I would like you to write this down. 1082 Epping Forest Road. 1082 Epping Forest Road. We have an opportunity, uh, thanks to Jim's hard work on our behalf, of um, potentially purchasing a piece of land that is just gorgeous. And it's only about a few hundred yards north of here. It's at the light, the next light up north of here on Epping Forest Road. It's a just sub five acre piece of land which we could 
um, purchase for about uh, $560,000 uh, and carve off two, potentially two uh, custom home sites on the property as well and still have a good bit to build. If we do that, um, we, could be, we could be liquid uh, with about $250,000 immediately. Um, even if we raise a little bit more money, we're still probably gonna be a little bit short of, of being able to do that. So it's a big, it's a stretch for us, but it's a stretch also that is just the beginning of a long stretch because <laughs> developing a piece of property, uh, turns out is not easy and not cheap. But we don't, we as a vestry do not wanna be all hair on fire over this thing. It looks like a, a good opportunity but we do not want to get out in front of the Lord on this. And we pray for this every week in our prayers of the people, that God would provide a permanent home for us and that he would provide the resources that it would require. But we absolutely do not want to get out in front of God on this. And so we tabled it, tabled any further discussion of it at our last vestry, vestry meeting so that we could spend a month praying about it every day. And that's why I asked you to write that address down. I would love for you to join us in that. Just pray whatever the Lord's will is for 1082 Epping Forest Road, that we would be open to it, that we would see it, or that some other thing would pop up in its place. Did I cover that well, Jim? Yes. Is it okay? Okay. Please. Please pray with us. We, in order for us to grow and to um, continue in this community, uh, I don't. I, I, I am very, very reluctant to make a uh, a comparison between what we would like to do and what David was praying in First Chronicles about the temple of God. But it, it, it is, it is for us a big thing, like it was for the nation of Israel. So. Thank you.